Please would you turn to Matthew's Gospel. It's the last in the series on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we're going to be mainly in all of it. But have a look, uh, would you, at the passage uh, that Andrew read to us. Uh, it's chapter 7, it's page 971 over to 972. It is, of course, foolish to try to predict the future, isn't it? I know that some people try. Tea leaves, horoscopes, the experts. The Bible actually says that God laughs at those who try to predict the future. The truth of the matter is that we don't know what's going to happen. But it doesn't stop us, nor should it, it doesn't stop us thinking about the future, where things are going, where life is going. And my sense is that for many people in all kinds of places, not least across some of the most privileged countries in the world, Western Europe, in Australia and New Zealand, in the United States, those countries that have known the most prosperity and the most peace since the Second World War, there is a level of anxiety about the future. There are concerns about the rise of terrorism, Boko Haram in Africa, events in Belgium, events in France, events in the United States. A man walks into a nightclub and guns people down in Orlando. Concerns about the rise of the extreme right in Europe. And just this last week, Joe Cox, a member of parliament in the United Kingdom, was gunned down and knifed and killed. She was somebody who had stood up for Syrian refugees. And there are suggestions that one of the motivations for her murder was precisely that. There are concerns about the fact that the economic orthodoxy of our day seems incapable of dealing with the mess that we're in in the global economy. And so people are fearful about the future, about where things are going, about their own personal economic security, about the security of their jobs, about what's going to happen to their children and their grandchildren. We're concerned, some of us, about the growing rhetoric of hostility and fear, if not outright hatred, against people like asylum seekers. And the cavalier way in which some of the rhetoric about things like same-sex marriage are carried out. The cavalier way in which, in all kinds of ways, about definitions of what it means to be a human being, of what marriage is about, are overthrown. And then, of course, you have to shop, don't you? You have to run your life. You have to pay your bills. I think there is a sense in which we are becoming an age of anxiety. And it's against that backdrop 
I want us to look at this last section of what's known as the Sermon on the Mount that starts in chapter 5 and ends here at the end of chapter 7. And here Jesus uses two of his most famous illustrations. He talks about two roads, a narrow road, the least appealing road, but it leads to life, and the broad road that is so accommodating and so popular, but it leads to destruction. And two houses, probably identical, architect designed, on the seafront. People take detours to go and look at them because they're so marvelous, state of the art. And what a perfect location, straight out onto the beach. But one of them, nobody has a house in Colorado, do they? One of them is built on sand, and the other one has firm foundations. One has no foundations, and the other one does. And when the storms calm, one falls, and the other doesn't. They're two of Jesus' most famous illustrations. The reason I want us to look at those illustrations against the backdrop of the anxiety that we feel about our world and our society and our own lives is because Jesus here in these two roads and these two buildings is not, not primarily or even most importantly talking about how you can get to heaven when you die. Two roads. There's the broad road. If you're on the broad road, you're going to hell when you die. It's the road to destruction. And then there's the narrow road, which is the road of Jesus. And if you go that way, you'll go to heaven when you die. That's true. But that's not primarily what Jesus is talking about. Two buildings. One that doesn't have foundations and one that does... What's he talking about? He's not just talking about how you can get to heaven when you die. He's talking about how you enter the kingdom of heaven now. And the kingdom of heaven is not where we go when we die if we're in Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is what we enter now. Do you remember the Lord's Prayer? May your kingdom come May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When does that happen? It's to break in here and now. The kingdom of heaven is about what it means to live life now, to be part of God's kingdom that has broken into the present, to be, you remember, Jesus says in chapter 5 and verses 13 to 16, about being salt and light. Let your light so shine that people may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. When you die? No. Here and now. It's about men and women who are followers of Jesus, who've been brought into a new way of doing life, who've been brought into the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven, and start to live that out in every area of life, in the present, so people look at that and they see the contrast between the kingdom that Jesus has brought in and the rotten destructive, corrosive, condemned system that they are part of. That's what he's talking about. 
that we are called to live out our lives as members of the kingdom of heaven now, and in doing that, to demonstrate the utter bankruptcy of the world that we're in and the way it operates. This is so much more than how you can get to heaven when you die. It's not less than that. What happens when we die is really quite important. Most of us are going to live quite a long time before we die, though. What are you going to do with that? This is about what you do with that. Two roads. Two houses. What are your foundations? And which road are you on One of the things I want you to notice about both those illustrations is this. One thing that they have in common is that appearances can be deceptive. So you look at the broad road and you think, well, there are so many people on that. There are some very clever people on that road. And they're saying, this is the way to go. And it's so accommodating. That clearly must be the right way to go. And two buildings, how do you tell the difference? Appearances can be deceptive. And Jesus here is saying, we need to think very, very carefully. Not just about how we're building our individual lives, but how the individual lives that we are building are related to the world in which we live. Because there are ways in which you can build a world And they look great, but they're condemned, and they lead to destruction. And that's what he's talking about. So let's get into the text. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 10 is the Beatitudes. Blessed are, poor in spirit, and so on. And then Jesus goes on to say that we are called to be salt and light, You are the light of the world. That's us. That's followers of Jesus. And then he launches into this blistering critique of the moral and spiritual state of the people of Israel. Chapter 5 and verse 20. This is the opening salvo. So you know it's going to be bad news from here on in. Chapter 5 and verse 20. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What's that about? Well, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in so many ways represented all that was best in Israel at the time. Who were the moral policemen? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They were the custodians of morality. They went around measuring the hems of Women's, no, no. But you, do you know what I mean? They were the moral and spiritual policemen of their age, and they exemplified moral conduct and religious devotion. These were the people you looked up to. But you remember, appearances can be deceptive. They looked so impressive in the way that they lived their lives. What's Jesus saying? They are on the road to destruction. 
These are the people who are on the broad road and inviting people onto the road and where they're heading is destruction. These are people who are building their lives and the lives of the community and telling people to build their community without foundations. And it's going to be destroyed. Appearances can be deceptive. So, let's get into what Jesus is talking about here. He looks at four areas, four areas that look really impressive, the kinds of things that we think, if we pursue these things, will lead to a better society and for us to have the best life that we can live. You got that? It's about both the individual and it's about the corporate. Four things that you can pursue if you want a better society. Number one is get back your society to traditional morality. If you can bring the society back to traditional moral values, biblical values, then you'll help to rescue your society. And that's the way to live a good life. And he gives some examples. We're in Matthew 5, verses 21 to 28. Number one, here are these moral values. Respect for life. Make sure you respect for life. You, you respect life, human life. Don't murder. Number two, restore traditional marriage. No sex outside of marriage. Don't commit adultery. Okay? Restore traditional marriage. Stricter laws on divorce. Don't take divorce lightly. Number four, put standards of trustworthiness in place, for example, in the workplace, to make sure that you can be trusted. Make sure you have, number five, a fair judicial system. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Make sure that it's proportionate. And then look after your neighbors. Love your neighbors. Those are all good things, aren't they? Please don't misunderstand me. Those are really good things. So what's the problem? They're the Ten Commandments. <laughs> what's the problem? The problem is that they don't get to the heart of the issue and the heart is the heart of the issue. That's the problem. For example, respect for life. Let's suppose you have a boss and his or her way of treating employees is that he's absolutely committed to not murdering you. You don't want to work for a boss like that, do you? You want to work for somebody who will treat you with respect. You see, a boss who's committed merely to not murdering you may abuse you, he may get angry with you, he may bully you. See, simply abiding by the don't murder is a minimum standard, not a maximum and yet these people are pointing to their lives and saying, I'm such a good person because I don't murder people. And you notice the repeated phrase that Jesus uses, you have heard it said, but I say to you. 
In other words, you haven't understood what the import is of those things that are said in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, for example. Don't murder. They are God's minimum standard, not his maximum. And if you simply adhere to the law, it doesn't deal with the real issue, which is your heart. And so you can avoid murdering somebody, but hate them. Because you see, hatred comes out of the heart, doesn't it? And not murdering them doesn't affect that. And God is concerned about our hearts. Living by these standards, standards of morality, doesn't address the real issue. The heart is the heart of the issue. And establishing moral codes, getting people back to the Ten Commandments, good as that might be, is not the answer to the problem. The problem needs to be addressed by addressing our hearts. In chapter 5 and verse 48, Jesus says we need, not just that our righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, for the reasons I'm illustrating but in verse 48 we are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect what does that mean it means that those issues to do with our desires our hearts need to be dealt with dealing with anger dealing with lust dealing with faithfulness trying to live by the rules doesn't work it doesn't because it doesn't get to the core of things and if we think that by working hard to produce a society that can be drawn back to moral values alone will make us a better society, Jesus would say to us, that's wrong. You can be on the road to destruction and be highly moral. Number two, religion. If we could only get more religion, that would make things so much better. So chapter 6 verses 1 to 18 is all about religion and Jesus uses three aspects of religion. The first one is social concern. There is a side of religion rightfully that's concerned with people's well-being, concerned about the poor. And so he talks about giving to the poor, charitable giving if you like. Then he talks about a second aspect. He gives an example of prayer, which is to do with the outward devotion, the worship. And then finally, he deals with a more inward side of things, and he uses the example of fasting, which isn't to do with weight loss. Okay, you know, we're into fasting, I know, but for different reasons. People then were into fasting because it was a reminder to them or it was supposed to be a reminder to them they weren't the center of the universe, amongst other things. And Jesus gives these three examples. And he says, do you know? You can be doing all those things in spades. Here are people, he writes about, who are giving with enormous generosity. But it hasn't dealt with the issue of their hearts. It hasn't dealt with the issue of their motivation. Why are they giving to the poor? Well, have a look. They are giving so that people will see them. And so Jesus says, 
What matters is your inward motivation. So let your giving, verse 4, be in secret. Same with prayer. What could be more a demonstration of spirituality than somebody praying? Well, praying doesn't necessarily deal with your motivations. Verse 5, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who, notice, love to be seen by others. Religious practice doesn't in and of itself change our motivations. In fact, it may mask motivations that are thoroughly misplaced and corrupt. And the same with fasting. Religion doesn't deal with motivation. You see, the heart is the heart of the problem. And religion doesn't deal with the heart. And where's religion heading? To destruction. It's the broad road that will end in destruction. It's the house that's not built on foundations. It will not survive. Number three, economic prosperity. Chapter 6 and verses 19 to 34 is all about wealth and money. You know, there is a line of thought that goes like this. It's very popular. If we can just get our economy back on track, if we can get more economic prosperity, if we can draw more people into jobs, make sure that they're better off, then we'll have a better society, more social cohesion. Things will go well for us. But you notice what Jesus is saying here in this extended passage? Basically, it's this. You know... If you're going well financially, individually or as a community, it's fairly easy to give the impression that you trust God because everything's going all right. But actually, your money can mask your idolatry. The idolatry being you trust your affluence and not God. Have you got that? When things are going well, it can be easy to show, easy to, to appear as if you're trusting God, but actually you're trusting your money. It's an issue of idolatry. So in chapter 6 and verse 22, Jesus says this, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And you think, what on earth is he talking about? What's that about? Simply this. It's possible to live your life thinking that it's money, that it's affluence that keeps you afloat. And if you view life like that, you're in darkness. That's what he's saying. And it's the darkness of idolatry. You're seeing life through the lens of money and affluence and as he says in verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either uh, you will be devoted to one and love the other, or you will despise the other. You can't serve God and money. It's possible to, be, to appear to be spiritually healthy, but actually it's disguised by money. Economic prosperity isn't of itself going to put society right. Or us. It's not that it's a bad thing. The danger is it can be in the wrong place, becomes an idol. 
And then the last thing. Last thing, if we were in the 1960s, I'd say this was revolution. But we're not in the 1960s, so it's about taking direct action. Taking direct action. Have a look at chapter 7. Chapter 7 has a section about judging. Chapter 7 and verse 1. Don't judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and may pay more attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take out the speck in your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take out the plank of your, in your own eye and then you will be able to see clearly to remove the speck in your brother's eye. What's he talking about? It's about taking action. You see something that's wrong and it moves you so much you want to do something about it. So you see the plight of asylum seekers and you say we have to deal with the injustice there. You look at economic injustice and you say, we have got to deal with that. We've got to change things. You see a situation in another part of the world and you say, we need to put that right. We will intervene. And Jesus is saying, you need to be really careful if you do that. Because you see, you're saying that the problem is all out there. The speck is in your brother's eyes. What you're neglecting is that the fact that there is a problem with you as well. The plank in your own eye. And simply pushing the problem, the issue to other people, to other places, and trying to deal with that is not the answer because the problem lies in the heart of all of us. And so in fact, intervention can actually be quite dangerous. Verse 6 is really odd. Don't give your dogs what is sacred and don't throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under your feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Dogs are not domestic dogs, by the way. They're wild dogs. They're scavengers. You don't want anything to do with them. And they're dangerous. What's he talking about? Well, I take it that it's part of the same context Perhaps Jesus is saying, if you simply intervene because you think the problem is out there and you don't deal with the problem in yourself, you can actually make things worse. Four things. Let's work at instilling moral values in our society and in our life. Let's get more religion. Let's get economic prosperity. We need to take direct action. None of those things is wrong. This isn't an either or. But Jesus is saying if you go down that route in the way that you build a society and the way you build your life or the direction you take your life in, you're heading on the road to destruction. 
And so there's a choice. Which road are we going to go on in our own lives because this is an individual thing and then seek to live that out because we're to be salt and light, remember? We are to live out the values of the kingdom because it's about more than getting us to heaven when we die. It's about demonstrating there is a different way of doing life. Which road are we going to be on? Which building do we have? What should we do? Two things to do to conclude. Number one, we need to ask. Have a look, would you, at chapter 7 and verse 7. Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened to him. We so easily take that out of context, don't we? The context is the Sermon on the Mount. The context is the call to be salt and light. How can we be salt and light having dealt with our desires or having them dealt with, our self-righteousness and so on? The answer is we can't do it. So what do we do? We ask. We ask God to do what he can do, to deal with us, to deal with the heart of the issue, which is the heart of the issue. And it begins with us individually. We ask and notice the promise, notice the encouragement. Which of your son asks for bread will give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how dare you think, Jesus is saying, how dare you think that God is worse than you are? How much more will he give good gifts to those who ask him? What do we do? We come in humility and we say, Lord, would you do something in me? Will you deal with my heart? Will you put me right? Because I can't do that. Number one, we ask. And secondly, we need to take radical personal action. Radical personal action. There's a wonderful phrase in verse 24 that Jesus throws in where he talks about who is the person who builds on solid foundations? What does it mean to do that? What does it mean really to be on the narrow road that leads to life? Look at what he says. Everyone who hears these words and puts them into practice. Radical personal action. And the words he's talking about are the words of the whole sermon. Radical personal action. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you, love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. Radical personal action. We need to ask, first of all, because unless our hearts are changed by God, we cannot begin to do those things. But then we need to employ radical personal action. And don't, Jesus says, believe those who tell you that you can change your world and change yourself without changing yourself. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. Look at what he says there in verse 
15. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Here are the people who come along and say, well, if we do this, if we go the way of morality, if we go the way of religion, if we go the way of radical social action, if we do that, then we can change things. And Jesus says, don't believe them. And if you want proof that they're wolves in sheep's clothing, look at their lives, because it doesn't work out for them, does it? By their fruits, you will recognize them. And for Jesus' first hearers, that would have been the scribes, the teachers of the law, and the Pharisees, who look so impressive. And don't imagine either, Jesus says, that there's any substitute for radical personal action. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. There is no substitute for that radical social social action where we ask God to do something else, where we listen to the words of Jesus and we follow them. You can be very impressive. You can cast out demons, prophesy in the name of Jesus. And yet Jesus may still say to that person, I never knew you. There is no substitute for radical personal action. You know, to be called to be a follower of Jesus Christ is an enormous privilege. It's not just that we're brought into a relationship with God, which we are. It's not just that we're going to spend eternity with him, which we are. We are the hope of the world. A world that thinks it's either by morality that it will change things, or by piety, or by economics, or by taking action and sometimes even quite dramatic action. And we demonstrate that there is another kingdom, a kingdom that leads to life, a kingdom that will not be destroyed. We're enormously privileged, but we're also tasked with a huge responsibility. And it begins with you and me, individually, asking ourselves the question, which road am I on? What are my foundations? And then together, being salt and light in the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that into a world that is without hope, you have come in the person of Jesus and brought hope. And Father, in doing that, you expose the bankruptcy of all our attempts to change the world. But Father, you in Christ have come to us and given us real hope a way that leads to life, 
a way that will not be destroyed, the foundations of this life not swept away. Father, we pray that those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ here today, that those of us who've given our lives to him, who've started out on that journey, who are part of the kingdom of Jesus, Father, please would you help us, provoke us, challenge us, encourage us to be salt and light in this dark world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.